to Digging Out. This is the September 27th, 21 edition. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host. This program sets out to offer means for getting us past November 3rd, 2020, January 6th, 2021, and beyond. My guest today will be Jennifer Lee Coe, now a Pepperdine Caruso Law faculty member. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Digging Out. My guest, Jennifer Lee Coe, is a law school faculty member at Pepperdine Caruso, here to talk about the Haitian immigrant crisis. Jennifer's research focuses on the convergence of the immigration enforcement and criminal legal systems, the legal frameworks governing deportation, particularly streamlined procedures taking place outside the immigration courts, and the federal court's treatment of immigration claims. Much of Professor Coe's career has been devoted to serving immigrant communities and advancing social justice amongst underserved populations. She helped found the nonprofit, the Orange County Justice Fund in 2017 and continues to serve on its board of directors. As well, she sits on the board of directors for the Public Law Center. She was honored with the Orange County Hispanic Bar Association's Attorney of the Year Award and Ethnic Studies Award from Chapman University's Ataya College of Educational Studies. Her scholarships appeared in journals such as Yale Law Journal, Washington Law Review, Southern California Law Review, Stanford Law Review Online, Duke Law Journal Online, North Carolina Law Review, and so many more. Various courts, including the United States Supreme Court, have cited Jennifer's scholarship. She's appeared in the LA Times, Washington Post, Christian Science Monitor, Law 360, Orange County Register, and various other media outlets. We're so lucky that she'll contribute her pieces here today. I'm going to post a link to her webinar appearance that was essential in my working to get her on this show eventually, the webinar entitled Law and Policy in the Biden-Harris Era After Trump, New Horizons for Immigration Law. I'd like to bring that link to this podcast summary. It's a terrific forum. It's evergreen. I'd like, as I said, to hone this program in on Haitian immigrants. Jennifer comes to us today from her office in Southern California. Welcome to Digging Out and back to Radio KUCI, Jennifer Lee Cole. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. It's great to be back. Well, thank you. Most recently, the webinar Law and Policy in the Biden-Harris Era after Trump. I'd like this program to hone in on Haitian immigrants taking in where we've already given background with Gerdine Joseph with the Haitian background last October. Today is the most recent history. We're going to follow the arc of understanding institutions, law enforcement institutions along the border, the pandemic, Title 42 as it pertains to asylum, the transfer of power from the previous presidential administration to the current one. And we will hopefully have some time for prescriptions and all arenas. So you were talking in June, you were expressing cautious optimism. So let's look at where we are in September 2021 with how asylum protections have still been broken, how they're breaking down with Haitians meeting that definition. Yeah, no, thanks, because definitely the U.S. treatment of Haitian people at our borders has occupied the headlines and I think unleashed a substantial level of concern, if not heartbreak and horror amongst members of the public who are looking at photos and watching the news and hearing reports of what's happening at the, at the border. So, you know, you're right that back in June, I noted that with the Biden-Harris administration and their promises for a change with respect to immigration policy, that I had some amount of cautious optimism with respect to what the future would hold. And in some areas of immigration policy, there may still be room for that cautious optimism to exist. But I will confess 
that that is slowly giving way to um, out again outrage, disappointment, and some some just some real uh, sort of anger over what's happening. I think in in many ways, and we can talk more as the conversation goes on. But our treatment of Haitian migrants has not shown uh, much of a departure from the prior administration. And so, you know, in terms of um, our current moment, providing opportunities for humanity, for fairness, for a new way forward, um, it certainly does seem to be lacking. I'm not saying that it can't be, because there are certainly opportunities to shift course and revise our current policies and treatment. But we, we haven't really quite seen that yet as of the, the very moment. Okay, and there are specifics we can talk about with the path of protections that you covered in the seminar and are looming over all this. But I guess I want to get to a very crude point of what the many, many headwinds in the resolution of the Haitian crisis at this point that First, as your colleague at UCI, your former colleague at UCI, Professor Stephen Lee was talking about there's all the undoing before the doing for the current administration. And I just want to say it's kind of rough undoing an administration that liberally applied the Roy Cohn playbook. It seems so incongruous with the thug versus an immigrant group literally plagued with earthquakes, hurricanes, and an assassination, a recent assassination of their president. So let's talk to that kind of a a lineup of forces there. Yeah, and maybe I'll just kind of seize upon um, this idea of undoing versus doing, right? And this question of like, well, does the administration need to first undo in order for it to, to do first? Uh, you know, do later on. I guess the problem is that we haven't really seen a full undoing of the prior administration's policies. So, for example, with respect to asylum, you know, one of the most striking results of the Trump administration was essentially an end to the lawful practice of seeking asylum at the border. And the Trump administration did this in all kinds of ways that, you know, in some ways happened a little bit gradually. Um, Initially, they had a practice called metering, where essentially people who were at the U.S.-Mexico border would be told, you can't ask for asylum today. You know, you're standing right here, but we're going to give you a number. And when your number is current, then you can come back and ask for asylum. And it was a very controversial, problematic practice that at times the U.S. actually even disavowed having anything to do with. And Jennifer, we saw, to that, yeah. Jennifer, with that step in mind, and I don't know if it's a current practice, but I know from covering this whole border dynamic from a different perspective that an individual that used to that had a janitorial job in the Ajo Valley in southern Arizona, and one of the things that he'd seen that had been trashed were an inordinate number of cell phones. So if the metering was to continue and the border law enforcers were taking away people's cell phones, there was no way that asylum process could be continued if no one had a means for being contacted. Is that, that's a very small detail, but is that your understanding is what was at work with the metering approach to how asylees, potential asylees were being processed? You know, I'm not sure about specifically whether a cell phone confiscation was part of the metering process. Certainly, once a person asks for asylum and goes into the detention system on the U.S. side, it was it's um, pretty standard practice for the U.S. authorities to confiscate people's personal items which is actually really problematic because lots of information tends to be stored on cell phones, including oftentimes evidence that become can become critical for a person even um, proving the truthfulness of their asylum claims. So, you know, I think as a result of a lot of this, there certainly have been communities, 
networks of assistance, ways of communicating uh, kind of crucial information, like when a person's number had become current under the metering policies. Um, But I guess what I really want to emphasize here is that U.S. law is actually quite clear on whether it is legal or whether it is sort of, quote, the legal way to ask for asylum by coming to the U.S. border physically and asking for it then. And I'm going to like literally read from a part of the immigration statute. It's for the right for the the law geeks out there. It's 8 U.S.C. 1158 from the United States Code. And it literally says and it uses the word alien because that's what our current immigration statute does. It says any alien who is physically present in the United States or who arrives in the United States and then in parentheses says whether or not at a designated port of arrival, um, sort of dot, 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 you know, irrespective of such alien status may apply for asylum. So our law is actually very clear that what a person can do is apply for asylum. And that means having a person's claim fully heard to understand is the person here because they're fleeing persecution in their home country um, where they have a well-founded fear of persecution or have suffered past persecution on account of race, religion, nationality, membership in in a particular social group or political opinion, right? The law is clear. Under the prior administration, we took a number of steps to just categorically say to people like, no, we're not going to allow you to apply for asylum, or we're going to make you wait for weeks, if not months, as we decide your asylum clay case. We, we enacted these policies knowing full well that for some people, asking them to stay in Mexico while hearing their asylum cases meant very concrete and very immediate danger to themselves physically, sort of all the horrible things that you could imagine might happen to a very vulnerable person seeking asylum at the border. And so, you know, in some respects, the Biden administration has tried to undo but, but not really, right? The Biden administration has still continued to use this practice known as Title 42 that was enacted under the Trump administration on public health grounds at a time when COVID was just emerging, when there was no vaccine for COVID. And it, Title 42 essentially shut down asylum and in the government's eyes allowed it to simply expel people summarily without hearing their asylum claims. Again, I say all this knowing full well that even prior to the Trump administration, the kinds of practices and policies that we had in place to assess whether people at the border could seek asylum and the kind of process we gave them was just entirely deficient from really kind of any any reasonable sense of what law is supposed to provide. Um, and maybe that's another story for another day because we're going again back into sort of law really put in place under the Clinton administration. But again, what we do see is a failure on the, on the part of the Biden administration to undo. And yet even had they failed to undo, This current situation involving Haiti, it really could have been an opportunity for the Biden administration to do something different, right? To set forth a different narrative related to how the U.S. treats refugees and displaced people from other countries who come to our borders seeking safety. Instead, what they chose to do was replicate the very same rhetoric that its predecessor had set forth, right? Harris essentially said, do not come, do not come to the United States. You know, and the the administration continues to say this. And I, I guess the hope behind saying do not come is that by simply saying don't come, we will make life miserable for you. Asylum is not available. Um, I think the rationale behind that is that if we say that, then maybe not so many people will come. 
The problem is, and here I'm going to just kind of like but Jennifer, go to poetry instead of law. Keep the yeah, poetry. I, I guess was, oh, go ahead. Keep the mm-hmm. poetry uh, for a moment. And when I heard in real time Vice President Harris say, do not come, immediately what came to my mind is, who is the actual audience of that? Is she speaking to mm-hmm. the people that were massing up on January 6th of this year? Or was she talking to potential asylees? I I was either very confused or very clear that it really was a constituency. And we'll we'll bring that up that you address that in your your June 8th webinar too with Professor Samir Ushers. So back to the, who's the audience for some of these sort of overt political messages and maybe your poem gets to that. Sure, I mean, and it's a great point, Claudia, right? Like when our leaders say, do not come, who are they really speaking to? And, you know, I, I, I sort of want to resist the belief that this administration is actually pandering to the people who are maybe like sympathetic to the January 6th Capitol riot. But I do think in part, you're right, that it's a message meant to um, sort of show strength to kind of quote unquote, the American people, right? That, you know, we're not willing to, to go so far to in another direction on immigration. I think there's a real sensitivity to like how the US voters will perceive that. I do still think there's sort of this attempt to say to folks, you know, again, don't come, asylum is not available. So the piece of poetry that that brought to mind for me comes from Warsan Shire, W-A-R-S-A-N, and the last name is S-H-I-R-E, who has a really incredibly moving, powerful poem that I would recommend to anyone. And it's been quoted a bunch of times, but what he says is, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. The poem also says you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. So, you know, as much as we would love not to have a quote unquote crisis, there is a humanitarian reality that is driving people to make an incredibly dangerous, incredibly harrowing journey to come to the U.S. And we do need to understand that not everyone is coming to the United States to seek safety from conditions in their home country. I mean, actually, kind of depending on where you look for your sources. So, for example, according to Amnesty International, there are 26 million refugees in the world. 85% of them live in developing countries. So not the United States, right? Some of the biggest hosts, according to the UN, the UNHCR, it, um, the biggest host countries for displaced people are Turkey, Colombia, Pakistan, Uganda, and Germany. So simply telling people do not come is not really the solution to what's a deeply complex problem that is also, um, you know, just literally affecting people's ability to survive and to live in safety. So I'll kind of stop there and, and let you chime in. So mm-hmm. then, um, so that those are the definitions. The Haitians really meet the definition with so much wrecking havoc since your June 8th webinar that there was an assassination of their leader. There was a hurricane. So this is a, this definition is very problematic that it's not being considered. And so that, and I I had an opportunity with Gerdin Joseph to visit the border in August of 2019. And it was like an eddying of Haitians in Tijuana, where they, they were stuck in these policies that we're talking about in the former administration. And so it's it's the undoing of freeing up that eddy. And while this undoing, I'd like you to talk about the undoing, like chewing gum and walking here with the processing Afghan refugees. Is, Is that asking too much of one administration to be undoing and processing in a different emergency that that Haitians have to be competing with? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And I mean, and I'm, I'm glad you also just brought up the conditions in Haiti 
in August of this past year, the government did designate certain Haitian nationals who are already in the United States for a very temporary status known as temporary protected status. And in doing so, what DHS said, like, and I quote, DHS literally said, Haiti is grappling with a deteriorating political crisis, violence, and a staggering increase in human rights abuses, right? So this is the recognition of our own government. If you look at the Department of State travel advisory website, our website literally says, do not travel to Haiti due to kidnapping, crime, civil unrest, and COVID-19. You know, but on this question of like, is it too much to ask the government, you know, can it both undo and do? I mean, that that's what government does all the time, right? And I don't mean to belittle kind of the seriousness of the situation, but um, I don't think it's unrealistic to ask the government to sort of manage to humanitarian disaster simultaneously to both undo policies of the prior administration, as well as to set forth sort of and chart new ways of even talking about refugees and how we process asylum seekers. The situation in Afghanistan and the situation in Haiti are two distinct scenarios with distinct histories in which kind of the relationship between the U.S., And each of those countries suggests, for different kinds of reasons, levels of responsibility and response that are something other than turning our backs away. You know, I think the situation in Afghanistan also was alarming and concerning. It does appear that we are doing some processing. It certainly doesn't appear that the for Afghanistan, it certainly doesn't appear that the processing and sort of creating avenues for safety for people who are still in Afghanistan and at risk of their lives who actively helped the United States. It doesn't appear that that's going particularly smoothly. Um, Although again, I guess perhaps at least the response hasn't been to completely shut the door up front at the very beginning. So, you know, I, I guess President Biden, he campaigned in part, and you know, immigration actually really wasn't a huge part of the campaign, um, but he did campaign in some part on this promise of, again, sort of a different way forward with respect to immigration. Um, I think he conveyed in his campaign that he didn't want the United States to be a source of moral embarrassment to the world. I think anyone from the Biden administration would say, of course, we decry and deplore, um, for example, the family separation policy of the Trump administration. Right. The problem is we're creating um, this administration is sort of creating its own legacy of embarrassment for the world to see. And, you know, a lot of times what Democratic administrations will say is they'll kind of send this message that's along the lines of, well, we want to be more humane, but we can't. We can't because of our Republican opponents. Right. Because they won't let us do that. Except at the same time, when Democratic administrations then perpetuate the very same story about refugees and asylum seekers, which is, again, something like our first obligation is to protect America from these foreign invaders. Well, by setting forth that narrative, we're really kind of like feeding into the very same opposition that we claim to oppose. It's sort of like feeding this endless loop of cruelty against the most vulnerable in the world. And in some respects, the laws we have in place make this easier. And yet in other respects, we're actually violating our own laws and commitments that we've made along the way. So yeah, it's a tricky situation. So much to unpack there. I just want to let listeners know who just tuned in. My guest is Jennifer Lee Coe. She's recently joined the Pepperdine Caruso Law Faculty. She was recently a part of UCI faculty. We're recording this on September 24th. The Democratic administration's perpetuating previous administrations. In the webinar you gave, you put up several slides of Douglas Massey's work where you plot the border patrol budget, 
the tensions by presidential administrations and all that. And the trajectory is exactly what you're talking about. The perpetuation on those graphs is demonstrated by how the uptick only is increasing. We don't see a real downturn regardless of party of the presidential mm -hmm. administration. So that looks like a serious baking in and undoing isn't happening over decades. I think that's right, unfortunately. Um, you know, and again, and, then, and then, that's not to say that it needs to be that way, right? It's not to say that continued expansion of the immigration enforcement machinery needs to be our future. You know, immigration tends to be highly politicized. It tends to be perceived of as a deeply partisan issue. You know, I do think there is a, a difference between um, an administration that outright says, you know, sort of, you should blame immigrants for all of our problems and, you know, that that sort of explicitly seeks to demonize immigrants and in ways that like intersect and kind of reproduce racial hierarchy. I think there's a difference between an administration that does that versus an administration that says, no, we welcome immigrants. We actually want to see immigrants as part of our country um, and we want to sort of work towards um, a racially diverse and equal society. And that racial hierarchy time, is, is looms very large with Haitians. Yes. I mean, there's there's sort of a whole strand of anti-Blackness that has been part of our immigration system for a really long time. And, you know, people like Gorlean are such important and critical voices in our immigration conversations. I would really encourage listeners to, you know, follow her, to be responsive to um, the work that the Haitian Bridge Alliance and other organizations um, like a, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration are doing. But what I was going to say with respect to, you know, the democratic administrations or our leaders who say, you know, kind of, no, 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 we're sort of not about cruelty. We really do want to work towards um, a diverse society that's welcoming towards immigrants. While that might provide some more opportunities for change and advocacy, there is something, um, you know, to also kind of critique about an administration that sort of says, these things and yet in action in maybe not every way but in some really significant ways sort of continues again our trajectory of kind of leading the world with fundamentally sort of anti-immigrant policies and actions so again you know this doesn't have to be our future but at the end of the day, this may be more of an indictment of all of us rather than one particular political party or another. So blending the, the racial hierarchy and the kind of movement ideation that Professor Samir Asher was talking about in the June 8th webinar, I wanna suggest, Jennifer, that there is a pretty straight through line from the opposition mounting against sanctuary cities being established in 2017, all the way from there to January 6th. And if you could talk about what he, he was raising, the phantom norms of exclusion in our entire US history, part of the digging out exercise today. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, I mean, I guess this is what I would say. I guess there's so much to unpack. I and, know, um, I know. <laughs> you know, Samir Asher is sort of like this constant fount of wisdom and always pushing us to sort of think even harder than we all want to. But, you know, if you just, if you kind of think about what a lot of these debates about immigration are, like, and even just what our immigration law system is, it's very much part of this bigger project of what is America? Who is America? Right? Who do we see ourselves as? Who do we want to be? you know, you take any given group of people, right? Take even like your family, you and your extended family, right? In any given group of people, you are going to have folks who are, um, I don't know, maybe not super law abiding, not big quote unquote contributors, right? Like folks who just need some extra grace and you give them extra grace because they are part of your family. And in any given group, you have like the superstars, 
and the overachievers and like the quote unquote contributors. But I guess the point is like, you don't judge your whole entire family. You don't make like categorical policies with respect to your family's ability to advance or be included based on like the worst of you. And maybe you also don't hold your family to like the expectations of the best of you. And so there is something there, right, where when it comes to immigration policy, what we do is we paint with a really broad brush and we're drawn either to um, the very exceptional and we look to the exceptional, we look to the overachievers and we say, you know, maybe kind of like, look, we're not that bad or why can't we all be like you? But we're also very much drawn to sort of those of us who struggle the most and then we create whole policies around sort of our worst versions of our communities. And we do that in particular with immigrants, right? So kind of throughout human history, we've, there's always been an immigrant group for whom we have said, like, you are the reason why we have problems and you in particular should not be here. And then we look to sort of the worst examples from that community. And, you know, we did that with the Irish, we did that with the Chinese, we did that with other Asian immigrants, with some immigrants, it leads to really concrete law and policy where we literally say like, let's enact something like the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And with other immigrants, it kind of like ebbs and flows and culture changes. And we don't have like whole legal frameworks that develop. You know, in the case of Haitians, other folks have traced the history and other folks have um, traced how the fact that we have this tremendous immigration detention system in the U.S. Again, that wasn't always what we did. Like it wasn't always the default to incarcerate and cage people based on their immigration status or their civil immigration violations. But a lot of the rise in the expansion of immigration detention in the U.S. can actually be traced to um, the experience of Haitians several decades ago. So, you know, sanctuary cities, Again, I guess what you hear around the sanctuary city debate is a lot of like, well, you know, what about safety? What about crime? I guess for me, you know, as someone who does actually, you know, I do care about safety. I do want my children to be able to walk down the street um, and feel safe, but I also want them to be safe from kind of anyone because anyone can engage in actions that undermine public safety, whether they're citizens or not. And I'd actually like for law enforcement to be responsive, sort of equally responsive to um, safety concerns, regardless of sort of the characteristics of the perpetrator. So anyway, but I guess those are a couple of reactions to sort of the call that Professor Asher had put out in the earlier webinar. It's really rich, and I'll make sure everybody can see that link. So there is a little bit of irony, though, in about who your children should be protected from on the street, that it's it's not the, the Haitian immigrant that is holding down a couple of jobs. It could be actually the white supremacist that's going to be spreading a, a Delta strain. So it's sort of, uh, it's, it's, uh, Samir Asher is thinking about that. So speaking of the Delta strain, that has made Title 42 uh, and the summary expulsion uh, provisions and all that's made it much more complicated, hasn't it, Jennifer? I mean, I guess in some respects, although it certainly hasn't changed our practices or policies in the United States across board. I guess here, I'm just thinking about, you know, just the debates over like mask wearing and mask mandates. No, I'm talking about the Title 42. Title 42 being a so-called public health measure. Right. I mean, that's, but, but I guess that's what I'm saying. Like the Delta variant hasn't necessarily changed all of our domestic practices in any kind of like really clear and consistent way, at least across the country. And so it's, less clear to me that it's a justification to continue the use of Title 42, right? Like you could imagine a world in which actually vaccination is also, I mean, because the president has talked a lot about his desire to get the vaccine out to um, outside the U.S., to as much of the world 
as possible. And so you could, again, just like, I think in immigration, we tend to think a lot in terms of certain outcomes being inevitable, right? We have the challenge of the Delta variant. Therefore, we have no other choice but to continue Title 42. And, you know, I guess I, I resist that characterization because there are other possibilities, right? It's not that they don't come with complexity. It's not that they're easy solutions, but I'm not sure that the inevitable sort of only response is to therefore continue expelling people and, you know, subjecting them to the kinds of dangers that they're fleeing, right? You could imagine a situation in which vaccination is sort of part of the asylum processing. So the process, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't actually think that that would lead to this massive surge to our borders, because again, the reasons why people are coming to our borders are, they're just so much more serious than that. Right, right. I understand. I'm, I'm just saying as, as far as those who want to justify using Title 42, that understandably, the irony is, it's the paradox that Delta strain is really the problem on the mm-hmm. American yeah. side of the border. It's not the outside. So uh, that that's uh, exactly. what I'm trying to bring to that. Yeah. So yes, let's talk, let's open up as much as time will allow your, let's say your first impressions. Let's break it down over the timeline. Your reactions first to the tenth city in the Del Rio, Texas area. It's on the Mexican side. And then we'll get to the real optics of the corralled Haitians by the Custom Border Patrol. Let's get, we'll, we'll talk about your impressions and break down what those roles have been along the border for generations. First, your reactions, Jennifer. Yeah, I mean, I think I share in a lot of the moral outrage that has been expressed over the various images that have come to light. You know, it's funny, I know on social media, you know, sometimes people say like, well, is this fake? This must be staged, right? That's always sort of like one of the comments that you're not supposed to read. Well, yeah. actually, uh, to be, to uh, we need to read that so that we understand what was being processed with a straight face by some. So we do need to read it. Yeah, and, and I guess, I mean, you know, that goes to, I guess, the harder question of like, to what extent do you trust the media and when you see multiple pictures and when you see that they're not all taken by the same person and it's also just one snapshot then probably it's happening in a larger context as well the funny thing with the the horses and the whips which right i mean because of the the so very obvious connections to um, the brutality of slavery were really you know disturbing and upsetting for lots of people. You know, the funny thing is then when you hear the White House press saying, well, okay, we are he- we are heretofore not going to allow Customs and Border Patrol to use horses in the Del Rio region. And um, I think for lots of folks, when they heard that response, they kind of, you know, there was this feeling like that kind of missed the point, right? The point isn't so much like, who authorized horses to be used. The point, again, is more like, what is the, you know, this underlying culture that says, you know, the presence of refugees is such a crisis that we need to kind of like draw in whatever physical means necessary, right? As though this is like, again, sort of a problem to be solved and managed as opposed to, you know, sort of people who are legitimately needing some kind of assistance. So, you know, definitely the the images are um, deeply troubling, but at the same time, you know, they are also part of this broader question of like the border and, you know, what kind of power officials have at the border. The border has for lots of different reasons often been kind of this lawless zone. And again, in sort of in ways that the Supreme Court has also reinforced, right, by by issuing decisions, for example, that say that like a border patrol agent who just shoots and kills someone near the border, you know, wouldn't be liable for their actions or how, again, sort of asylum processing happens and um, what kind of like accuracy or um, accountability in the decision making process we're comfortable with. Um, so again, the border has sort of been this lawless zone for, for lots and lots of times, even before those images came to light. So Jennifer, I'm hearing you say that it, the 
Supreme Court reinforced this kind of conduct. Would you say, though, it's a stretch to say it actually the courts enabled that kind of conduct, that dynamic? I mean, that's much, much more deeply baked, saying we're not even going to take it out of the oven. We're going to keep baking it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that characterization either. Um, you know, I don't want to pin this all on the Supreme Court because no, no, cases I... go to the court right only after they've developed over time. But I, I think that that's right. I mean, in the specific case that I was sort of alluding to, but did so pretty vaguely um, at the end about sort of like accountability and the decision making process is this case, DHS versus the Resigium that was decided last term. And it said that sort of this is during the in a non-metering, non-Title 42, non-Remain-in-Mexico asylum case um, where the person had a chance to go through the asylum system, but before getting to an immigration judge, um, what happens is people would have these like really kind of relatively brief, relatively informal screening interviews known as credible fear interviews. And what the court held there was that even if like an asylum officer conducting that credible fear interview were to like just get something really horrendously wrong, that um, there just is no judicial review over that part of the decision-making process. So kind of like during parts of the process that, again, they're, they're not court proceedings. They're sometimes like these telephone interviews that are not even perfectly transcribed. Um, that even if, again, the officer were to just like get things wrong, the courts would not even take a look at the accuracy. Uh, or well, and the interview was not conducted stuff. in the language of the person that's applying. Correct. So it's, it's, and there might be, you know, there would be a translator, but again, sort of like there's no actual process during these interviews to ensure that um, the accuracy of the translation is up to snuff. So the, the reason I really am so glad to have you on this program is I've, since I've heard you talk on June 8th in the webinar, and it, you, as your colleagues at the webinar talked about, your work over a long time is your full understanding of how much discretion, you talked a little bit about that when we're talking about the Haitians being corralled in Del Rio, Texas, but the discretion that the Customs Border Patrol and ICE agents have. I don't think people fully understand that. And that's why you were you were saying that the Biden administration saying we're like a Casablanca moment. We're shocked, shocked that the horses are being used <laughs> at the border. There's so much uh -huh. more yeah. that you know about that discretion, which hasn't changed no matter what kind of campaign is to call out these yeah. horrible optics. They're still there. They're going to remain there. So talk about how lawless the conduct is. I mean, and I mean yeah. that pretty literally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, and I mean, I kind of jumped the gun and um, just a couple of moments ago referencing these credible fear interviews, but to try to boil it down, quickly, basically, again, under laws that were enacted by Congress and signed into law by President Clinton, in a quote unquote, ideal situation, like this quote unquote, standard process, for um, processing an asylum claim for someone who comes at the border, it essentially involves like three layers of adjudication before three different types of decision makers. So the very first sort of sorting interview that happens is with a Customs and Border Patrol agent who, when a Customs and a CBP agent encounters someone who's seeking, or any, any non-citizen who doesn't appear to have papers to enter near and the border. And that's literally somebody um, in, Del, in the, the Rio Grande yeah. River crossing into Del Rio, Texas. That, that's, we can right. follow that person in these three steps you're talking about with a bag right, over their right. head going through the through yeah. that river and showing up on the Texas side. Right, right. So even the sort of, again, the sort of pre-Trump administration policy was, I think when I often explain it to people, they're fairly horrified, right? Again, because kind of the, the average American has a sense of, you know, just kind of like what law involves, what justice involves, what you would expect from a legal process. But um, it's that very first screening stage that I think tends to be most problematic and that is kind of the most like a black box where 
um, a border patrol agent encounters a person and under law and their own rules and regulations, what they're supposed to do is ask a person, you know, do you have fear? Are you afraid to go back to your home country? And if the person says, yes, they're supposed to not be immediately deported, they're supposed to move on to the second stage with the asylum officer known as a credible fear interview. So the problem is that at this initial stage, right, these conversations take place, they don't take place in courtrooms, they don't even necessarily take place in offices, according to some former clients who I've spoken with, maybe it's been like a video call on a computer on a bench in a border processing station with like other people right next to them on a bench, maybe in their language, maybe not. There have been lots and lots of documented cases by um, human rights organizations. And in fact, even by the U.S. Religious Freedom Commission. So even with like international human rights observers in the room, um, the rate at which like these, the Customs and Border Patrol officers didn't follow their own protocols and actually ask a person if they had fear were really quite staggering and suggest, again, just like a basic breakdown in the process. The problem is, I mean, the law doesn't really provide for that much. Again, these are not even like necessarily recorded or transcribed encounters, but they're so important because it's kind of like if you don't make it past stage one, there's no place to go to seek review. There's nowhere to go because the person has then just been like immediately deported. There's then a second stage. The final stage is before an immigration judge. That process also there are lots and lots of flaws with the immigration judge stage, the final stage. Oftentimes the person is being incarcerated. This kind of nature of those proceedings, they're like they're themselves subject to lots of due process concerns. But it's that initial part, the encounters with border patrol are really unregulated and give lots and lots of power to border patrol agents in terms of what they want to write down that the person said, right? Again, been all kinds of examples of like three-year-olds who have gone through this process and the notes from their conversation with the border patrol agent say something like, you know, why did you come to the United States? I came here to work. Okay, well, from a three-year-old, right? And then um, attorneys have shared stories of like, if they look at like all of the interviews from a particular um, day or period of time, like they're all almost exactly the same. People were saying the exact same thing, right? So just like the basic idea that in a legal process, you would have a chance to be heard that what you say would be accurately recorded um, and that the decision maker whose ultimate decision might have life or death consequences would ask you the questions they're supposed to ask you. Like, kind of those basic, very minimal processes have not been observed. And again, I'm describing like the sort of pre-metering, pre-Remain in Mexico, pre-Title 42 process. Jennifer, what's step number three? Did you give us that? So step number three would be going before an immigration judge. They're called immigration judges. They do take place in a courtroom-like setting. There's no right to government-appointed counsel, although um, the government prosecutor, the government would be represented 100% of the time, and the decision would be made there. So did you want to say anything about the ICE agents in the jails and the access and that that process and the lack of a, a public record? The, I mean, the ICE agents and their their discretion briefly before we go to prescriptions for handling this mounting humanitarian crisis. You know, there's so much to say also about ICE and immigration detention. I guess I, I, it's its own story for another day, I guess I would, I would just say. And, you know, but the, the immigration system is a civil system. The idea in the eyes of the law is that we're not criminally punishing people. We're just holding them civilly while their immigration cases are being decided. But the reality is, is that it's a, it's jail, right? It's incarceration. So is, is ICE participating in this mass, the deportation now of Haitians are, is it, or is it strictly the mass deportation there? I, I mean, Geraldine talks about how many people fit on one plane and then this last week, three to four flights had taken off, but is ICE participating along these, these mass deportations of Haitians? 
You know, truthfully, I think ICE's role here is probably more minimal. It's possible that ICE is participating in the actual processing of the flight. Although, you know, both ICE and CBP are part of the Department of Homeland Security. So they are part of the same broader uh, government agency. Well, then let's bring you back, if you're willing, to talk about unpacking a lot more about ICE. And I'm sorry, we, we still have a few sections to talk about. But I guess, briefly, the response time, what was your reaction to the first, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, resigning, and then finally, Department of Homeland Security's Director Mayorkas, uh, and then finally, the President Biden himself. What about the timing and reacting to those optics we're mentioning in Del Rio, Texas? Yeah, I mean, it seems like some of the news over the response time of administration officials is still unfolding. Um, I did find the planned, the announced resignation of the special envoys to be quite interesting. Um, And I'm going to guess that, you know, (laughs) there are things that he's not happy with, that that might be a slight understatement. If we could take up prescriptions for handling this crisis, there's the government sector, there's the non-governmental organizations, and there's the activist actions that you could briefly address. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of solutions going forward, I think what we see right now is a really heavy burden being placed on the shoulders of activists and non-governmental organizations. And there are some incredible people in organizations, everything from churches to um, immigrants' rights organizations to just individual people who are seeking to um, provide basic needs and love to Haitian folks who are at our border. And I guess what I'd like to see is a more significant shifting of that responsibility as amazing and laudable as the nonprofit and private response has been. It's unclear to me why the government maybe can't take on some more of that given our resources. And fundamentally from any of the branches of government, I guess what I would love to see is a shift in narrative I don't think this necessarily means, again, sort of quote unquote, like opening our borders or opening the floodgates. But, you know, you could imagine just more substantial leadership from the U.S. in response to what is a global challenge. And so, you know, the details of what that looks like can take many forms, but not the knee jerk response that we talked about earlier of don't come here because asylum no longer exists. That seems like a, that that appears to be an unhelpful and unproductive solution to the current challenges that face us. So I'd like to see something, something different along those lines. And tie the whole interview up in a bow then, as far as therefore using the Haitian immigrant humanitarian crisis as a way that the U.S. government could lead to say, Climate change is going to bring so many Mm -hmm. more refugees to every country. We, as the United States, are going to take responsibility and lead with this inevitable uh, rush of additional and inordinately large number of refugees. That's that's where leadership Well, Jennifer, it's been so good to have your valued insight as this topic continues to unfold. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me and best of luck in the future. Thank you. My guest was Professor Jennifer Leco, who's recently joined the Pepperdine Caruso Law Faculty, recently a part of the UCI faculty. We're recording this on September 24th. We're gonna go out with a track by Shirley Skye, Uman Kim, on her Tutuni album. She's a Haitian national based in the Northeast, New Jersey, I believe. So, folks, it's really important to follow up with Haitian Bridge Alliance. Follow Gerline Joseph, Gerline M. Joseph, J-O-Z-E-F. That's her Twitter handle. And she's in Del Rio, Texas, as I record this show as well. You can follow the link that I'm going to set up for the webinar that Jennifer Lee Cope and others participated in. Talk with you next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Oh. Oh, my